Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Breaking Health Podcast. This is uh, Tom Salemi, your introducing guy. I'm here with Steve Krupa, the actual host of the podcast. Steve, how are you? Great, Tom. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's fall in New England, Steve. I know you're now a, a proud Boston resident, or actually yep. a Boston area resident. Have you picked any apples or, uh, or peeped any leaves yet? I have not. I have not. Re- the leaves don't seem to be coming down. Yeah, I-, I, did, uh, I did learn how to operate the heat in the house. <laughs> is that which- a big deal? Which I was surprised I needed to do. I mean, in New York, we turn our heat on around the well, around the fifteenth of October. So yes. up here, it gets a little colder, a little sooner, I guess, a little crisper. Yeah, but, well, you get the single family house now, the big house in in Winchester, and uh, you know it's hard <laughs> to keep those things those things cool or warm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but we'll we'll heat things up with this podcast. Uh, you had a great talk with uh, Iora CEO Rashika Fernandapuli, uh, and it's a. Uh, it's a, an area that we've hit upon before. I know we had talked to Harkin Health sort of about realigning or, or redefining primary health care. Maybe get a bit into uh, what Iora is doing and, uh, before we get into the conversation. Yeah, so I think the difference between Iora and Harkin is um, they are attacking uh, uh, the same problem from a little bit of a, of a, of a different angle, where Harkin obviously is thinking themselves of themselves as an insurance company uh, that is trying to build an enhanced primary care uh, delivery model uh, f- as part of an insurance choice. Um, Iora is coming at it a little bit different. They are building an enhanced primary care model. We can talk about why that's important. Um, and they're looking to offer that uh, as an independent uh, set of physicians Primarily, I think initially to, to corporations, which is where I think most of their business came from. But they're also they've got also got an eye towards uh, Medicare, and you'll hear about that in the podcast. So, is the competitive edge the uh, the way it's delivered, or do they have a technology element that's giving them the ability to to, to do things differently? Well, I think they're they're they address the fact that they're building their own workflow technologies for themselves because. You know the model that that they are that they believe in is is a new model that was executed many years ago differently, but with the same idea. That being a uh, an effective primary care physician, uh, where you're able to see the doctor more often or assistants that are directed by the doctor more frequently, should improve your wellness. Should allow you to address any of your health-related issues more comprehensively uh, with greater guidance and greater coaching should be able to integrate the behavioral health piece of things, which we talk a lot about on this podcast. And the result of all of that should lead towards less utilization of expensive services like emergency rooms and, uh, and, and hospital stays. And so the argument is give us your patients and we'll, we'll stay on top of them in a more comprehensive way. And the benefit is a better interaction with the doctor or the patient, um, better quality care, and and lower cost of care, uh, with the with the model of uh, of selling that service to corporations that are interested in trying to reduce their uh, healthcare inflation. Wow! And, and I'm sure you put on your your VC hat and asked the the hard hitting questions about: Are yeah. you making money? Yeah. 
Well, it was interesting because I, I, I think the story comes from a, from a physician's point of view, which is, you know, when, when you and I were young, we got a lot of our doctor's time. And that's eroded away through the managed care reimbursement model where for primary care doctors to be successful, um, they have to handle a large patient load in terms of the number of patients. And they have to actually do a lot of paperwork because of the insurance regulations. And what uh, the idea here is to sort of take it back uh, to a physician-oriented model. And the fundamental question was, and we asked it of Harkin Health, you know, can you make money doing this? In the example of Iora, if they're selling uh, the, their services to corporations that are self-insured and individual employees are selecting them to be their primary care doctor, the corporations are going to pay them a premium. And if they can manage down the other elements of the care spectrum for their population, then they'll continue to use them and they'll have a successful business model for themselves wow. and will have changed their, their work life. You know, we talk about the triple aim, right? Better quality, better care. I mean, cheaper, less expensive care, uh, better quality, better patient experience. Then there's the quadruple aim where people want to add a better experience for the doctor because mm-hmm. there's a sense that doctors are getting burnt out out there. Uh, the fifth piece, uh, if you add the fifth piece on there, is you have to be able to accomplish those four things in a business model that generates profits enough to keep you in business. And uh, that's where Iora is going. And I think that'll come out in the, in the talk. Excellent. Well, let's just hop right into it. We're going to talk to Rashika Fernandapuli, the CEO of Iora. Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast. I'm here with Rashika Fernandapoli, the CEO and co-founder of Iora Health. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you could uh, could join. I mean, we're going to talk about you know how to deliver better healthcare, right? At the end of the day, but uh, before we do that, uh, you've got to tell me you know how you got into healthcare and, and how you decided to. Uh, to create your own model for healthcare delivery? Yes, I'm a primary care doc. I trained in internal medicine and was working in typical practices. Okay. Uh, you know, have, have also always been interested in the system side of things. So I was an undergraduate uh, government major, actually studied ethnic conflicts. Uh, I did a master's in public policy while I was in the middle of medical school. Uh, so I've always been both interested in medicine per se, taking care of individual patients, but also how we think about the system by which we do it. And found myself out in practice, and uh, it just became really clear really quickly that the model that we were delivering, the care we were delivering, was suboptimal. And again, not because of bad people or bad intentions, right. uh, but but the system, the system was poor, and, and a colleague put it really well. I remember very clearly it was the day in February uh, here in Boston where it gets dark at about 3.30, and <laughs> it was cold, and it seen you know, 30 patients in a row, seven minutes each. Some were double-booked, you know, barely had time to go to the bathroom, let alone eat lunch. Uh, they just put this new sort of electronic health record in, so you couldn't even do all these points and clicks and notes during the day, so it would have to sort of take scrawl notes and piece of paper and then come back for about two hours in the evening after the last patient left to try and write all my notes so you wouldn't get sort of slapped on the wrist. Yeah. Uh, and I was sitting there with that colleague who was doing the same thing, and that's what she said was quite telling. It was, every day I lose a little piece of my soul. Oh. 
uh, because we went into this to help people, and they come to us with such big needs, and we, you know, we we have so much we can offer, but we can't do it because of the stupid system. Uh, and that's when I realized I need to do something different. When when you talk to people in in the industry and they talk about the various, and of course, we, you hang around Boston and New York City long enough, and you wonder if there, there's any primary care doctors anymore. They're so specialty driven uh, <laughs> because of yeah. all the med- you know all the academic institutions and so forth. But uh, the choice to become a primary doctor is an interesting choice because I would imagine when you make that choice, you know what you're getting yourself into or do you not? You know, the reason I decided to be a primary care doctor is really sort of, you know, I actually sometimes think it's not about, you know, uh, primary care versus specialist. It's sort of generalist versus partialist. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I went into medicine not because I was enamored with the heart or the skin or the eye but was really felt like I liked people and I liked putting together the whole picture and how does sort of illness uh, interact with social issues and, um, you know, and all of that, be able to sort of um, think about things holistically. And primary care was a great place to do that, was really, I like relationships. And so that's what went into prim- why I went into primary care. I couldn't see myself spending my life focusing on, you know, just a few square inches, right, of, of sure. one system. Sure. So just for, just for sort of background on, on primary care. So when I remember like when I was a kid and I'm, 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 I'm older now, uh, in my fifties, but I remember my pediatrician, I remember my sort of general practitioner physician. And the one thing I remember is I spent an awful lot of time with those guys when I went to see them. You know, the doctor was, when I was seeing yep. the pediatrician, the doctor was in the office with me. I don't know how long it was, but it felt like too long because I, I was scared of the guy, you know, and I wanted to get out. <laughs> and, uh, but even as I got older into my teens and start, sort of see a general practitioner, I mean, they were there to calm you down. They were there to, there to offer advice about lifestyle. They were there to offer insight into your biometric screening to the extent that they were doing that for you or insight into how to avoid catching an illness, obviously it's much different today. When I'm with my primary care doctor, and they're very nice people, I do get this sort of sense of urgency that they got to get the hell out of the room to go someplace else. Is that really what it's like? Where you're just like, I got to get out of here because somebody else is waiting to see me and I've got to see 30 people a day or I can't break even. Yeah, so what's happened is we've got ourselves on the wrong side of a vicious cycle. So what happens is the primary care, believe it or not, is 5% or less of total health care spending. Uh, what's happened is, you know, the cost of everything else goes up, primary care has actually been ratcheted down. So you've got sort of suboptimal, so you, so you can't spend enough time, don't have the support. That means what happens is you deliver suboptimal care to people. Again, and things slip through the cracks and you don't proactively manage things, so that means that people end up in trouble, get to the hospital or the ER or the specialist, and that increases healthcare costs. And what happens when healthcare costs increases? People ratchet down primary care even more. So now you, instead of a seven-minute visit, you have six-minute visits. That means that care gets worse and people go to the hospital more, costs go up, and you have five-minute visits, right? So that's, yeah. unfortunately, the cycle we have gotten ourselves in. And I think part of that is we've just thought wrong about this. And in general, I think the big problem about primary care, or maybe you could argue this about healthcare in general, is we've turned it into a transactional business. It's all about documenting, coding, and billing. The way you get paid is per doctor sick visit, and there's an inane set of codes, 99213, 99214, and you have to check off X number of boxes and X number of systems to get that. And so everything is transactional. Right, and I think as you pointed out, the real realization is that. Um, and, so, and by the way, all the things we're doing to try to fix primary care, 
which is sort of medical home criteria and meaningful use and all these largely well-meaning things, just add more transactions on the top of that. And we get our doctors do more and more and more. <laughs> so now they have to do more stuff in the six minutes we give them, right? right. All these quality metrics, et cetera. And none of that works, right? The, the bottom line is what actually heals people is not transactions. What heals people are relationships, sort of conversations you have with your doctor. And, um, and the way to get to relationships, you have to get rid of the transactions, right? One of my favorite quotes is uh, uh, Michelangelo, the great artist. They ask him, you know, how do you get the pieta, this beautiful sculpture? He said, it's really simple. I take a block of stone and I chip away everything that's not the pieta, right? And that's exactly <laughs> what we have to do. I think the way to fix healthcare isn't to... Um, add more stuff on. It's actually to take things away that we think don't add value. And so much of the stuff that we're doing now in healthcare does not add value. If you define value as better care for patients, really simple. Um, and so let's get rid of that stuff. And so that really, uh, so the, the whole genesis of Iora is that what everyone else is doing, what I did for most of my career to try and fix healthcare, because everyone's trying to fix it because we know it doesn't work. That's not right. a secret, is incremental and small and adding stuff on. And the simple insight for Iora was, why don't we just start over? Why don't we start from scratch, chip away the stuff that's not the pieta, and create a new model of care uh, from the ground up? Right. So that really is what we're trying to do. Very cool. Very cool. And when, so at what point in your career did you realize that uh, you needed to do something? I know you, you talked about you know, that one incident where your colleague was giving up a piece of their soul but of course, there's primary care doctors out there that I guess are giving away a piece of their soul every day and do and not doing anything about it, other than <laughs> continuing to be primary yeah. care doctors, right? So, you you obviously said uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give up a piece of my soul anymore. But you didn't change jobs. You started a company to do something about it. When did you make that decision? Yeah. So, so the good news is at the time uh, when this happened, I was also. Uh, spending a chunk of my time running this uh, interfaculty health policy program at Harvard. So this was the brainchild of the provost at the time, a guy named Harvey Feinberg, that Harvard ought to lend some of its intellectual weight to solve big problems in society, things like the environment and healthcare, but that the way the university was organized in their little silos um, didn't work, right? So is fixing healthcare in medicine, business, public health, public policy, economics, sociology, problem? Which, which department? The answer, of course, is all of the above, right? So they realized that this structure didn't work. So they created this sort of new structure, which sat sort of at the president's office level and could allow you to sort of work across those. I was running this program. And so the good news is on Harvard's time, uh, I was able to say, hey, this is exactly the sort of problem we should think about. How do you redesign healthcare delivery, starting with primary care? Let's actually think about it a bit, right? And had the time to go around the country, um, meet people who are doing cool things, think about what I'd do, again, if I was going to start from scratch, uh, and, and really come up with a design of, okay, if we're going to start over, what would we do? And I think the, the, one of the things I learned from one of the people I talked to, which were the guys at Disney Imagineers, and if you know the, the folks who sort sure. of did a lot of the cool stuff at Disney, one of their insights was that, uh, um, uh, that you need to build before you're ready, right? So you can sit and whiteboard and do this academic exercise all you want, but what you really need to do at some point is prototype and build a lab and just try it. So I actually went to all the big health systems here in town uh, in Boston, you know, which is, quote, the mecca of healthcare, and maybe the U.S., at least people around here think so, sure, sure. Uh, and said, uh, hey, I've got this great idea. I've been working on this project at Harvard. What if we started over, build a new primary care model uh, from scratch that was solely aimed at sort of making better care and not all this other draws? Um, will you let me build a practice and try it? 
and they all sort of pat me on the head. And, and this was, by the way, around 2003 or so, mm. uh, and said, you know, that's really interesting, but, you know, our practices are full. We're making money. What's the problem you're trying to solve? <laughs> and the obvious answer is care sucks. Patients hate it. Doctors hate it. It's bankrupting the country. Uh, outcomes are embarrassing. But, but to their point of view, and by the way, these are, in theory, academic, not-for-profit, mission-driven places. Right. right, but but in any case, put that aside. They decide um, that this is not something they're interested in, uh, and that's when you come up to the moment where I think every sort of entrepreneur faces. Where at some point you say, "Look, if I really want to do something, maybe I just need to do it myself." And the simple insight was, "I'm a doctor; I could just start a practice." So ended up sort of quitting the day job and starting a practice in Arlington, Massachusetts, which is a suburb sort of near Cambridge, sure. and said, "Let's just try this." But lots of ideas. I won't know if they work until we try. So let's just give it a try. Yeah, I know Arlington. I'm I'm in Winchester in Burlington, as you know. So yeah, sort of the <laughs> sort of our neck of the woods. You know what's funny about it is is that is that that is the issue with healthcare, right? If you measure it by the money, uh, it's only broken in certain places. If you measure it by the the triple aim, and it and you would probably fit into the quadruple aim, right? Because you're thinking about the doctor. Yep. Uh, it starts to look pretty funky, right? And you start to sit there and say, well, yes. we've got businesses <laughs> that are making money. I mean, nobody at, at the, the large health insurance companies aren't, aren't doing well. Nobody that runs a large hospital system isn't well paid. But somewhere down in the functional aspects of the business, the care is too expensive, the outcomes are unpredictable, the consumer doesn't have a good experience, and the doctor is losing a part of their soul every day. <laughs> and so, <laughs> exactly. you know, we're, we're in the midst of trying to tackle a big problem. People say, well, let's use technology to do this. Um, maybe technology has a role. So when you, when you sat down and you said, okay, I'm going to go at this, you know, how did you convince yourself you could start to attack those? And I'm assuming the four issues that I mentioned are the four issues that you're attacking, quality, cost, consumer experience, and physician life, uh, working life. How do you build a business where you can attack those four things and still make some money? Yeah, so, so you know, it, it's actually easier to figure out what the thing is you can do to make those four things better. Yeah. The harder one is actually what we actually, I actually call it the quintuple aim. You've got to add a fifth aim to that. <laughs> the making which money is part? Profitability. <laughs> making yeah. money part, right? Because I can do the top right. four. But well, we're not money. communists, that's not right? Hard. I mean, we. Uh... Right, no, right, no, because, right, that's not hard. So, so really what I've always thought is quintuple aim. Like, we need to improve patient experience. We need to improve health and outcomes. We need to lower the total cost of care and reduce waste. We need to improve the life of the docs and the people working system. And we need to do it in a way that's profitable or else we go away, right? right? And so that's what we need to do. Uh, and, and the proposition was, let's just change everything, right? Let's, let's recenter the system on relationships and not transactions. Uh, and let's build a system which, uh, this is where a little bit of leap of faith comes in. Like, I think, I think it's very clear in lots of studies, the Institute of Medicine and other people, uh, that, that at least a third of what we're doing in healthcare in this country is waste. And again, be clear, waste is defined as things we're doing to people that either have no value or are causing harm. Right, So the idea was, let's not try to aim at that. Let's aim at doing the right thing. If we do the right thing, we will create all this value by not doing all of the things that have waste and that we will somehow find a way to harvest that value and get paid for it. Right, So, um, so we started uh, 
you know, another design principle, by the way, that we learned in this initial work at Harvard is, is backload constraints, don't front load them, right? So if you start in healthcare with the constraints, uh, you know, I want to do this innovative, you get a, you can't do that because, you know, you won't get paid for it, you'll get sued, doctors won't like, you know, et cetera, and you won't go anywhere. So the design principle is design in the absence of constraints, imagine you can do anything, come up with the idea, and then put the constraints in the back end. Right, okay, now the world has constraints, but then you've gone somewhere, right? So the, we designed a model that was, okay, let's be relationship-based. So let us um, have everyone have a shared care plan. Let's uh, wrap a team around patients, which include not just a doctor. Of course, we're important, but these folks we called health coaches who are from the community and help people execute on the plans they have and integrate mental health into the model and do emails and text messages and let people see their whole medical record and go for walks with them, go to their home, take them grocery shopping, um, you know, proactively reach out to them, help manage the downstream stuff, right? It's so really a very different model. And then you get slapped with, okay, that's all well and good, but most of the things you just mentioned don't get paid for. <laughs> so what do you do? So, that, so the first model... Well, yeah, I thought the same thing, but I figured you'd get to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the <laughs> obvious thing, right? So, so by the way, most doctors, the thing I just described, they wouldn't disagree that all the things I mentioned are the right things to do. And unfortunately, what they said, well, we won't get paid for it, they guess that we won't do it. And, and I think my version of it was, last I checked, you know, we took an oath to serve our patients, not the insurers or whoever decided what gets paid for. So the fact they weren't paid for is sort of their problem. We need to figure out a way to deliver this stuff if we think it's the right thing. And so the first, the first take at this, the only thing we could figure out was let's ask our patients to see if they could support this. So we literally, um, back of the envelope, we said, look, if everyone, we're going to bill insurance for whatever they'll pay for, the doctor's sick visits, but all this other stuff we're doing, emails and walks and proactive management and, you know, all of that, health coaches, IT, uh, if everyone paid us about 40 bucks a month, which is what you pay for your AOL at the time and your lattes or whatever, uh, and by the way, if you were a young person, which is defined as 35 or below, for the good reason that I was 35, so I had to be in the young category, uh, pay us 20 bucks a month, and by the way, if you can't afford it, pay whatever you can, 5, 10, and if you want to pay more, by all means, pay us more and we'll help support other people. So it's this sort of funny little cooperative, uh, <clears throat> you know, I think uh, direct patient care thing, and, and it actually worked. We gathered patients and people paid us, and, uh, you know, it, that business model worked. It was slow, it was painful, uh, it took a while, but um, it allowed us to build a practice and learn a ton. Hey everyone, this is Tom. Just taking a quick break from this podcast to introduce you to a new program that's being rolled out by Healthogy. Healthogy is the company that produces the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit and the Breaking Health Podcast. We're trying to build the next big booming voice in healthcare and we want to add your voice to ours. Check out our Companies to Watch program. Go to healthogy.com. That's the word health followed by the letters E-G-Y.com. Companies to Watch will give you the opportunity to tell your story, to share your voice or add it to ours, and uh, to get your, uh, your company's story out to uh, our, uh, our communities uh, across healthcare, ophthalmology, medtech, digital health, uh, we've got it all covered. So what you would do is uh, you'd come to uh, one of our events, you'd be able to uh, video record one of uh, your, your company's story, and we would produce that video, make it available to you, of course. And also send it out through our own channels. So uh, it's a great opportunity to uh, to have your story told to a broad community of potential investors, customers, and partners. And uh, it's something you should certainly explore. So go to healthogy.com, check out the companies to watch um, link, or uh, just uh, send an email to my colleague Maureen Linehan 
Her email is Maureen at healthogy.com. Either way, you'll get the information you need to decide if you want to be one of our companies to watch. So at some point down the road, I think you've gone out and raised some money for your business, right? Yeah, so this was bootstrap, right? We yeah, were bootstrapping sure. this. We had a yeah. sort of loan from an old old boss of mine. We we then sort of, uh, a step before that, we sort of more, this retail model sort of, uh, with all well and good, there were two big problems with it. So one was, it was really clear to me that, well, I mean, the big problem was that we're asking people to pay extra for health care, right. right? And the problem with U.S. health care is not that there's too little money in it. So we need people to give us more, right? That's a problem in Rwanda, right? right. You know, the problem in the U.S. healthcare, there's an obscene amount of money in healthcare. So asking people to pay more is like throwing gasoline on a fire. We have to take money out of healthcare, right, back in people's pockets. So asking them to pay more seems silly. Uh, point two is it was clear there was pl- where that plenty of money was was really um, uh, in downstream care, right? So that this better primary care, more intensive care to people, not just improve the experience and outcomes, but we were keeping people out of the hospital, out of the emergency room, out of the the cath lab, uh, and that whoever's on the hook for that ought to pay for what we're doing, right? So, um, so that's when we sort of morphed the model and said what we ought to be doing is uh, doing this, uh, and so the next obvious place to go was self-insured employers, right? right? So sure. we ended up working with a guy named Arnie Milstein, who worked for a company called Mercer, and he, working through him, we got a, a gig with the Boeing company in Seattle uh, to serve their uh, employees, uh, and um, uh, and that really worked well, right? So Boeing cares about healthcare costs because obviously it's an international competitiveness issue. Whenever they put a 737 up against an A319, uh, they have a big cost differential because Airbus, who makes the A319, is in France and they don't pay healthcare costs. And, uh, and so they were willing to sponsor this. And uh, so we said, let's do this working with some existing health systems, Virginia Mason, the Ever Clinic, Valley Medical Center. Uh, let's have Boeing pay for this extra into the primary care, and then they would get the benefit of the downstream savings. Sure. Uh, and, by the way, they would give us the data, right? So in the, the old practice in Arlington, we tried to get the health plans to even give us the claims data so we would be able to show we were making an impact in downstream savings. They wouldn't let us, right? Mm-hmm. So, But now when Boeing tells their health plan, give these guys the data, they say, yes, sir. Um, and so we... Um, did that. We did that for three years uh, in Seattle and showed great results. So uh, Arnie Milstein published in Health Affairs. Did you build a clinic on site there or at, at the Boeing factory? Or? So we were near site. So the, when you look at any sort of employer, at least half the problem are actually the spouses, mm-hmm. right? So sure. if you think about it, you have to be sort of healthy to be able to go to work every day. So if you look at who are the people who are racking up the costs for an employer, it's often not the worker, but their dependents. Uh, so we would build near site clinics, and again, uh, so near there's one up in Everett, so down near where they have a big plan to build the double aisle planes, the mm-hmm. 787s, 777s. We had one in Renton, you know, right near where they had um, built a single aisle plane, the 737s, the 717s, and then we had one down downtown where they had the corporate offices at the time, you know, before they moved to Chicago. Right. So, uh, so they were near site clinics, uh, exactly. Interesting, and and. Um... So you were able to demonstrate to an employer that basic because in the old days, right, when I first started to get exposed to healthcare, we were just coming out of this was in the mid '90s. So we were just coming out of this cycle, this HMO cycle, right? And the original HMO cycle was really all about group model HMO benefits, where you would have, uh, you know, and Cigna and Prudential were big pioneers in this. You would have a central medical group 
that would be the primary care focal point of every member in the HMO. Those groups were often built near employer facilities. And they, um, they performed many of the things I think that you're performing. I don't think they had as much of uh, an integrated mental health model or a health coaching model. I think they were relying on the docs to do a lot of that labor. But that business lost traction because of the desires of the consumers for open networks. So do you find that your model conflicts with an open network? And if it does, how are your customers reconciling with that? Yeah, so two things. One is this is a choice. So we're not for, uh, we ask the question all the time, how is this not going to turn into managed care in the 80s, right? <laughs> Which we what? saw how that ended, right? Uh, and one of, one of those is um, that uh, you don't want to force people into this. So th- this was a choice for people, and they weren't forced to do it, and you could choose. Uh, and so the key then is, so again, it's not just value-based. A lot of people talk about value-based care. The other flip side has got to be very consumer-centric. It's got to be a better experience for people than what they have now. So make, people aren't looking for choice. They're looking for a better choice, right? So let's just give them a better choice. Uh, and so this is sort of concierge care for free. Right? right, you can email your doctor, same day visits. Uh, we'll Skype with you. We'll let you see your whole medical record. Uh, you know, do a lot of things that a lot of other companies do about hiring for attitude, train for skill, high service. So we, our practices have net promoter scores. I don't know if you're familiar with net promoter scores, yeah. where you ask people how likely you to refer to a friend or colleague, and what do you do is you get the people who love you. It's a one to ten scale. So the nines and tens, people who love you. And you subtract out the zero to six as the people who sort of are lukewarm or don't like you, and you get a net number. So the airlines, you know, they throw parties when they break zero. Um, you know, health plans are in the minus two, minus four range. Um, most primary care practices are in the 10 range if they're lucky. The best people in the country, so Cleveland Clinic is very proud of their number, which is in the 50s. Uh, we are, you know, Apple, Trader Joe's, the uh, paragons of the economy are in the 70s. We score in the low 90s routinely. Right, so people love it. So that's the key: is you've also got to build things that people want to go to, um, and uh, and so then they beg for it, right? As opposed to feeling like someone's putting me in there. And number two is <clears throat> what we do is we have narrow. What most people are trying to do is wide open primary care and try to narrow the specialist network, so you can only go to this set of specialists. You actually want to do the flip, right? Narrow primary care, theoretically wide open specialist network, right? So the question isn't. Um, so, so here in Boston, you know, we have a <clears throat> we have a health system partners, which is yeah. very high quality, high brand, but very high price, right? And what the way people are trying to fix the network, are they trying should partners be in or out of the network? That's the wrong question to ask. The question is when should you go to partners, right? So, yeah. if you have a rare leukemia, should you go to partners? Absolutely, it's the only guy who knows how to treat it. By all means, if you need a knee X-ray, which is a commodity, should you pay three times the market price to go to partners? You've got to be an idiot to do that, right? Why? Right. Um, and so that's the idea. So let everyone in and then let the primary care help patients navigate when should you go where and for what things. Uh, that's a very different way to think about how to manage this. It's sort of more supply chain management. Yeah, no, so, in, so in general, people like it, right? And it's a choice. People come vote with their feet. And so generally your, your business is, is it still mostly the self-insured employer market where employees opt in to have you be there. Basically, it feels like ombudsman, concierge, and, and primary care doctor around, the health, yes, around their health care. all of the above. But again, the key is we're not just trying to change primary care. We're using primary care as a lever. 
And it's a great sort of lever point because you can help people with what I call upstream, how to eat better, how to actually improve their health, as well as downstream, how to navigate the system, go to the right place when you need it. So primary care is a really, it's only 5% of healthcare spend, but we can make an impact on almost everything by doing it. It's a great lever point. Like I don't want to own all the rest of the system. Right. Right. Uh, but what I want to do is own the primary care so we can control that. Uh, so we started in the self-insured employer space, right? So we've been working with employers. Uh, we work with Union Trust, so the Casino Workers Union in Las Vegas and Atlantic City. Uh, we have worked with the Carpenters Union in Boston, work with uh, Dartmouth College for their employees up in Hanover, New Hampshire. Um, about two years ago, we made a pivot uh, a pivot, but we said, you know, the other places work. So this model works particularly well with sicker people and people with chronic disease, sure. right? So you can imagine this sort of relationship-based, high-impact primary care uh, was better for sicker people. Where are sicker people? Well, they're in Medicare, right? People are older. Yeah. And so we've started now working a lot with uh, with Medicare practices, so through contracts with what's called Medicare Advantage plans, so Part C plans, where uh, we actually build practices dedicated for them uh, and can serve those patients. Um, and then the third branch we started to do is for patients on the exchange, so through Obamacare. Again, we have a joint product with the payer, which is sort of our primary care as a front end, and sort of they build a sort of built-for-purpose back-end insurance product that's offered as a product on the exchange. Um, and so we now are, so we've gotten to scale. The, the point of Iora was to how do we do this and do this at some scale, uh, I think a lot of people are trying to innovate healthcare and putts around at small scale, right? The infrastructure yeah. one needs to build is, yeah. is reasonably robust, and let's do the scale. Uh, we raised a bunch of private equity money, so we've raised several rounds of venture capital, uh, which I think helps us both build the infrastructure and sort of tolerate um, working capital to be able to get these things going. Uh, so we have 34 practices as we speak uh, around the country. We're in 11 different cities. Um, you know, about a third of them are in the employer space, uh, a little more than a third are in the Medicare space, and then uh, a bunch are in the exchange space right now. Very cool. And and th- is there a role that you see if, in technology? Are you developing your own systems? Are you using off-the-shelf products? How does technology aid you in this effort? A great question. Um, so when we started doing this in the first few iterations, uh, we tried to work with existing electronic health records, and we work with uh, Cerner and Epic and eClinical Works and, all, and a lot of the ones that are still around, yep. Greenway. Uh, and not surprisingly, it was very clear that these products were built, not surprisingly, for the old world. They're built to help you document code and bill higher. They're throughput engines. They're transactional. Uh, they're very focused on the doctor. Uh, they're reactive. They're sort of um, which is exactly what we don't need, right? So one of the things we do is we do no fee-for-service billing, right? So it doesn't matter to us. Right. What we need is what I'd call a collaborative care platform that's relational, that gets data in from everywhere, that prompts proactive care, that allows patients to get engaged, lets us manage teams with data, um, that's what we need, and uh, and those don't exist. And so we made a decision about six years ago when we started raising capital is we would build our own platform. And so we call it Chirp. By the way, I is a bird, so nice. Chirp, obviously. Right. Uh, and it's a collaborative care platform built from scratch. It's modern software. It's Ruby. It's uh, cloud-based. We use agile development. Every two weeks, we have a new iteration. Um, really, what we're building is I would call a new operating system for healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a tight meld of a technology platform and a people platform, right? So thinking that technology will solve healthcare is silly because this is at root a behavior change issue, sure. right? So you need to get at both patients and docs to change behavior. 
Computers don't do that, right? But that, that said, if people alone aren't going to fix this because healthcare is, is inherently a data-driven thing, to know who to focus on and what to do. So let's put those together, right, yep. where we have systems in place where um, the technology tells the people what to do, but the people are the effector arm. They have a relationship with the patient. They can actually turn that insight from the computers. A lot of people have these great systems. They create these beautiful reports that sit on people's desks. Right, that doesn't change healthcare. No. Right, but if we now have a task on the health coaches, athletes who knows the patient to reach out to the patient and get them to do something because they care about them and, the, and they care about each other, now all of a sudden we change behavior. Right, so so we have we're really doing both. It's a little crazy for a small company that has to build our own IT platform, but we have to, yeah. right, because it doesn't exist out there. And what's interesting, there are a handful of us, by the way, we're not the only people who have doing this. They started from scratch, built new care models. So. ChenMed, QLions, uh, Crossover, there are a, a few handfuls of us. Almost every one of us came to the same conclusion independently that we had to use, we had to build our own stuff because right. nothing existed. It's very interesting. It's, it's a lot of what some of the HMOs did when they built their automation systems. Of course, they were not really automating anything. They were basically just building workflow systems and then, yep. and then, and then ultimately... You know, the whole world of insurance changed and there was plenty of commercial technology that got built up to, to help yep. them. Do you imagine yourself yeah. uh, having built commercial technology or do you feel like it's really your internal system and you, and you focus on making sure that it's just delivering what your business needs? So for right now, we're building for what we need. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's really nice when, uh, it's very different when everyone who uses the software works for you yep. versus that they're paying you for it, right? And then we also now <laughs> in the position well, where we can... It's ign- not supposed to be that way, but I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and we also now can ignore things like meaningful use and see chit and all these other sort of noise about, you know, government regulating what features you ought to have, right? That's, to me, that's a dumb way to create good software. Uh, we can actually purely say how, what do we need to build to help us do the job we need, which is quintuple aim, right? And uh, we keep improving it. You know, might there be a day in the future when, uh, you know, we actually commercialize this? Sure. To be honest, the market for it now is very small, right? Because this is built very explicitly for people who are not doing any fee-for-service. And that the market for how many people are actually really not doing any fee-for-service is very small, right? Despite all the hoo-ha about people taking risk, most of the, quote, risk people are taking are these sort of little bit of, you know, pay for performance or risk share on top of fee-for-service or right. crew-ups at the end right. of the day, right? Not really true population-based payment. Well, you know, the medical groups in California, you know, got very aggressive. Have been doing it, yeah. And, and they, they do a pretty good job out there. They've been doing a great job for 20 years, right? Yeah. And we're learning a lot from them. And uh, I think there's some groups in South Florida that have been doing it for a long time yeah. uh, and doing it very well. Uh, and I think what we've said is, can we build a model that we could actually um, scale nationally, right? Because sure. I think many of those groups have had a really hard time scaling nationally because it's hard. It's really hard. No, no, no. And, and like when I look out, out into the marketplace, I mean, let's face it. I mean, Medicare is an example, right, because of the acuity. But every large corporation is looking to try anything to get their trend down because it's driving them nuts, right? Yeah. Because their margins are not yep. growing at the rate that their medical expenses are. Even you know when I look at, at, at a portfolio company with you know maybe two or three hundred employees, as it gets larger, you start to look at the healthcare bill and it starts to get unbelievable that it's gotten so large. So there is a a demand to try all kinds of things, and and what you're describing makes sense. And I love this line. I think I've got the line right, and you'll correct me. It's restoring humanity to healthcare. Is that is that the uh, 
the sort of tagline for the company? It is a tagline. It's, it's exactly what we do. And, and so that's why we start from scratch, by the way, because I think that a lot of people focus on the process and the technology and even the payment models, and those are really important. Right. But I think the key is you've got to change the culture, right? You change the culture. Uh, you walk into one of our practices, it feels different in about three minutes. And that's what really is at the root of it. You get the culture right, the other stuff will follow. You don't get the culture right, no matter how much payment change and other stuff you do, it, it won't make a difference. Yeah, you got a bunch of Java programmers and database guys running around. It's not a healthcare care company. It's a software no. company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Software-enabled services is, is, is a way to think about it. Yep. So very cool. We're, we're sort of down to our last couple of minutes. So let me, let me ask you a traditional closing question. Um, I feel when I talk to you, that the culture of your business is embedded in so much of what you talk about and what the essence is of what you do. But there's always an employee culture and a relationship that employees have with the company and the relationship that they have uh, with its mission and vision. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing that uh, when it comes to your company with IRL. Yeah, so one of our early investors is actually Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappos. I think there's a lot of Zappos sort of DNA baked into the company. Uh, we made this early on that, uh, you know, our goal is build a, a large game-changing company uh, that's going to change an industry. Uh, and and any all, I think, good game-changing companies start with saying we need to treat our employees amazingly well, right? I think way too many people in healthcare treat their employees like crap and then somehow get surprised when they treat the customers poorly, right? So, <laughs> It's not going to happen. So, so we do a lot of things. To, you know, um, uh, our big advantage too, though, by the way, is we can't pick who works for us, right? So we pick people who this is the mission they want to do and this is what they want to sign up for, and they are a part of it. Um, you know, people feel we believe in sort of a bottom-up pyramid where people, you know, it's very, the, almost all the good ideas don't come from me, the CEO, or people sitting in Boston. They come from people in the practices because they're the ones seeing our patients. And so we set a culture up where people feel like they've got a huge voice and they actually drive the company. Uh, we give everyone who works for the company a share of the company when they work for us for a certain amount of time. So if they're part owners of it, you know, so lots of little things we do. Uh, to, we celebrate culture all the time. We, every two years, we've been getting the whole company together, everyone from the bottom to the top, uh, for a weekend to celebrate each other, get to know each other, and build that culture. There's just lots of little things you do. They're not fluff, right? right. Some people yeah. say, "Oh, you, you know, the um, you know, if you were a drug company, who cares the culture is not the drug?" I said, "No, our drug is the culture." Right. Yeah. So the, the culture is the drug. And that allows us then to take great care of patients. And that allows us to help um, improve their health. And that improves us to change the economics of healthcare. And that we harvest some of that. And that drives the economics of the company. Right. But the base of that is building a great company culture. That's cool. I, I agree with you. I think it's also good uh, that the CEO is uh, open to talk to employees and feel like. He's accessible and, and interested in them. I think people are more are become management is interested in the people that are working there, and vice versa. You end up having sort of a fun time when you're in the office, hopefully, even though you know business is a struggle every day. Yes, exactly. So that's good. Good conversation. Uh, thanks for joining me. The the last thing is is uh, would love for you to just sort of put out there ways in which listeners can find out about you or be in touch. With you, do you have a Twitter handle, Facebook website, all that good stuff? Yeah. So, uh, so uh, our website is uh, Iora Health, I O R A H E A L T H dot com. 
Uh, there are a number of articles about us and, uh, you know, more about our practice and our model. Uh, you know, if, if people happen to be in one of the cities we're in, you know, they could stop by and see a practice. We're in, uh, you know, on the website, you can see all the places we are coast to coast. Uh, it's open enrollment time to put a plug in for Medicare. So if you have seniors who, uh, are interested in getting this sort of care, please send them our way. Um, my Twitter handle is at Rashika1. Um, and, uh, again, would be happy to, you know, take questions and the like from people if they have ideas or thoughts. Terrific. Rashika Fernandopoli from or Iora Health, thank you for joining me today. It was fun to talk to you. Great, thank you. And that is a wrap. Thank you, Rashika Fernandopoli, for joining us on the Breaking Health podcast and sharing Iora's story. Very happy to have you here. Steve Krupa, another job well done. Very happy to have you as our host, the CEO of the Silos Group. And thanks, of course, to our listeners for joining us on the Breaking Health podcast. You can uh, see Iora, you can see Steve and myself at the upcoming Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. It's happening on November 2nd in Boston. For information about the agenda and uh, to register, you would uh, want to go to healthag.com and all the information will be there. Hurry up, though. This one will sell out uh, pretty soon, so uh, don't wait too long. Thanks again for joining us and tune in next week for another Tale of Innovation.